Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The author of Hebrews knows that every faithful Christian stands on the shoulders of those who have gone before him. He commands us to consider the life and faith of our spiritual ancestors. Faithful leaders, both living and dead, provide for us a model of belief and perseverance. This isn't about hero worship. Leaders from the past equip us for the present. Through their teaching and biographies, famous Christian dead guys can become some of your closest friends. Remembering your teachers and imitating their faith provides intergenerational friendship that spans across church history. John MacArthur has mentors and friends who lived and died long before he was born. That includes the Apostle Paul. And so, as always, I, I start to think about my mentor. My mentor is the Apostle Paul. I think you know that. And a truckload of Puritans. Well, along came the Puritans. Many of us love the Puritans, and rightly so. The 17th century English reformers. Repeatedly, MacArthur has mentioned the impact of Stephen Charnock, who wrote The Existence and Attributes of God. But there's one departed saint who MacArthur is particularly close with. So that you see, my friends, it in the end comes back to this. We either accept this authority and trust ourselves to it, or else we trust our own brains, our own minds, our own reason, and the so-called certainties of modern knowledge and modern science. Indeed, it comes back to this. You either believe and trust to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, or else you trust to the authority of men, the authority of the critics. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor of Westminster Chapel in London from 1939 to 1968. Though Lloyd-Jones went to be with the Lord in 1981, 12 years into MacArthur's pastoral ministry, the two men never met. Yet John said this about the doctor. You can read people and say, well, you know, I appreciate that, I like that. In my reading Lloyd-Jones, I felt like somebody was running around on my own head. I just felt like this guy sees things exactly the way I see things. And so I wanted to know all I could about him. We're going to explore this unique friendship today. And as we do, we're going to see that every preacher and every Christian needs dead mentors and friends. Saints from the past keep Christians in the present from becoming spiritual shipwrecks in the future. John Piper, who's written dozens of Christian biographies, says a good biography is powerful theology because it bursts forth from the lives of people. 
He goes on to say, In my pastoral disappointments and discouragements, there is a great power for perseverance in keeping before me the life of a man who surmounted great obstacles in obedience to God's call by the power of God's grace. Every ministry is built on a foundation laid by the previous generation. That is more than true about MacArthur's connection with Lloyd-Jones. The similarities between the two are uncanny, as we'll find out on this episode. My name is Austin Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching, and this is season two of the podcast from the Center, The Entrusted, The Convictions and Legacy of John MacArthur. So who was Martin Lloyd-Jones? He was a Welshman born right at the end of the 19th century, literally December 1899. Uh, he, he just made it the last one. This is Jonathan Catherwood. He's Martin Lloyd-Jones's grandson. For years, he ran the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust, which curates and distributes his grandfather's sermons born in Wales and lived there for most of his childhood. He had a brief time in London, but, but really missed Wales and riding his horses and being in the villages of South Wales. Uh, but he was a very, uh, as was his brother, um, a very bright uh, young boy. And when he went to go down to London, uh, he did well enough to go to uh, medical school in St. Bartholomew's Hospital. And he did very well there um, and went into uh, research um, medical research and ended up working for um, the Queen's physician on Harley Street. St. Bartholomew's Hospital, or BART's as it was commonly known, was the premier teaching hospital in London. Lloyd-Jones went there when he was just 16 years old and stayed for nearly 11 years, training under a doctor named Horder, one of the premier physicians and teachers at BART's. Dr. Horder didn't simply teach Lloyd-Jones how to treat patients. He taught him how to think. Here's a clip from a documentary called Logic on Fire, where Ian Murray, biographer and assistant to Lloyd-Jones, talks about Horder's influence. Although Horder was teaching medicine, he encouraged Lloyd-Jones to read books on logic. And, and so... Uh, how you tackle the problem, how you saw the whole picture, don't go to the details first, see the whole picture. Things like that certainly were drummed into him in the medical school. And Hoard, that was kind of Hoarder's gift. He would, he would distinguish the details from the main problem. Dr. Hoarder taught Lloyd-Jones to notice everything, to observe and question the patients until he had the right diagnosis. One Lloyd-Jones scholar has said that if Sherlock Holmes were a preacher, he'd be a lot like Lloyd-Jones. That ability to observe, to diagnose the problem, to think critically and logically, defined not just his medical work, but also what would come after it. Here again is Jonathan Catherwood describing the end of Lloyd-Jones' time at Bart's. The difficulty he had uh, doing that in his uh, in his twenties during the nineteen twenties 
was that he came to the conclusion that for many of the patients that they saw that what ailed them wasn't actually anything physical, uh, that it was a spiritual ache, that, that people didn't have meaning in their lives, uh, that a lot of their illnesses were psychosomatic uh, or were driven by um, a lack of meaningfulness in their world. Lloyd-Jones' medical career ended because God called him to the ministry. Many friends and family members didn't understand the decision that he and his young wife, Bethan, made. They were both convinced that this is a call of the Holy Spirit. But interestingly, in the Christian circles, um, this was viewed very negatively. Um, and you can understand why, not to be judgmental with 2020 hindsight, they felt that the Bible teaches us to exploit your talents, um, that my grandfather had been given great skill in being a doctor. He'd been put in a position of prominence. Uh, working for Michael Horder, uh, that he uh, saw people as uh, like the uh, Prime Minister, Lloyd George and others. And so that as a Christian working in medicine, there was much good that he could do. And if he didn't want to be a medical doctor working in the secular field, he could become a Christian missionary. Uh, but he felt convinced that the Holy Spirit had uh, called him. Let's stop here briefly and note the extraordinary conviction and humility of Lloyd-Jones. He could have spent the rest of his life at the height of one of the most prestigious careers in England. But he decided, in his mid-twenties, that he didn't want to give people temporary healing. He wanted to offer them eternal peace and joy. So in 1926, he departed London and moved with his wife back to his native Wales, to a small, blue-collar mining town the opposite of cosmopolitan London. There was a sense of wonder that he'd go to a mining town where almost nobody went to university. Uh, a lot of people suffered from the soot disease that the miners got, uh, and it was plagued by drunkenness and poverty. Uh, but that's where he went. And he always felt that his medical training uh, was an enormous uh, help to him because his approach to biblical exposition uh, much like John MacArthur, uh, was extremely uh, logical and precise, and that his medical training helped him uh, when it came to preaching. In Wales, Lloyd-Jones's wife gave birth to their two daughters, Elizabeth and Anne, and he learned to preach and shepherd a flock. But after 11 years, Lloyd-Jones was called back to London, where he would become the associate pastor of Westminster Chapel in the heart of the city. This famous church, then pastored by G. Campbell Morgan, is less than half a mile from Buckingham Palace and walking distance from Westminster Abbey and Big Ben. It was as urban as a church can be. The day before Lloyd-Jones became a pastor at Westminster Chapel, war broke out across Europe on September 3, 1939. Here's Neville Chamberlain announcing the start of the Second World War. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country 
is at war with Germany. Germany's daily air raids, commonly known as the Blitz, would upend life for every resident of London, forcing them to live with constant vigilance, to shelter underground, to ration food, gas, and other necessities. That was certainly true of the people of Westminster Chapel. Three times over the course of the war, bombs landed on Westminster. Each time, firefighters were able to save the church. Once, during a Sunday service in 1944, a bomb landed a few hundred yards away, shaking the church enough that dust fell from the ceiling. The congregation stood at attention, but Lloyd-Jones was unfazed. One biographer said that he continued his prayer as though nothing had happened, and the congregation sat down again. In 1943, before the war was over, G. Campbell Morgan retired, and Lloyd-Jones became the senior minister of Westminster Chapel. Like John MacArthur, he started preaching verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. I think for him, it was really the sermons. The thing about the sermons was that he felt very strongly that they were guided by the Holy Spirit. That's why he never had a set agenda for a series. He didn't start Romans and saying, we're going to cover this in a syllabus is what I was looking for. He didn't have a syllabus saying, here's what we're going to cover in the next 10 years, because he felt that you prayed for unction um, and that the Holy Spirit would guide it. And if you needed to spend three weeks on one verse, then you spent three weeks. And if it was one week, the next one, it would be that. And that when you're gone, uh, essentially what you're leaving behind you um, are the messages that were provided by the Holy Spirit, were just vehicles for the Holy Spirit, and that they can be continually useful. For more than 30 years, the pulpit was central to the ministry of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it was the focus of every Sunday service. Here is Ian Murray at a conference in 2014 describing a typical Sunday at Westminster, where every moment prepared the congregation for the sermon. He would come quietly into the pulpit, bow his head for a moment at the desk, then the doxology would be sung without, it, without intimation, and then he would lead in a brief prayer, and then the first hymn which he would announce, and it would be a hymn leading into worship, and perhaps especially for the Lord's Day. And then the morning service would always include one metrical psalm, but there'd be four sermons. There would be what we call the long prayer, pastoral prayer, um, and then brief notices by the church secretary, who had been at Princeton in 1906, and, and, and in the 1950s he was still attired as though it was Princeton in 1906. <laughs> and... Uh, then a, 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 a hymn before the sermon and then the sermon. But by the time the sermon came, generally you were gripped. There's no question of the preacher having to get the attention of the people and tell them a little story to interest them. We come to a consideration once more of the words which are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 8 and verses 3 and 4. For Lloyd-Jones, the pulpit was the priority. But both the man and his ministry went beyond the pulpit in very tender, personal ways, as I found out during my conversation with Mr. Catherwood. He was a pastor, 
So after uh, the services on the Sundays and in the mornings and the evenings, he would stay in that study until the last person um, had been seen. And his telephone number was in the phone book. And, and this was in the days uh, before caller ID. So if he went to see my grandparents who lived down the road from where I grew up, in the evening and the phone rang, you didn't know who it was. It could be somebody who's a troubled soul who had been in the church. It could be a deacon uh, asking about something, a family member going through an illness. Uh, the phone was always answered. Uh, no one was ever turned away. The only exception to that was in the morning when he closed the study door and it's, it's time for a prayer. That that was inviolable and nobody could go in during that period because that's when he drew, tried to draw strength through prayer from the day that was ahead. He was a pastor. And here's what Mr. Catherwood said when I asked him about his relationship with his grandfather. Yeah, he was a very uh, gentle man. Uh, that it sometimes comes as a surprise to people who like to hear him preach, but in the pulpit, uh, he could be very fierce. Outside of the uh, pulpit with his uh, grandchildren, uh, he was the sweetest and gentlest man, taking my sister and my brother and myself out for ice cream. I know this sometimes scandalizes people. We had a quarter-sized pool table <laughs> at our house, snooker, as we call it in England, which he would play with me when they would stay with us during the holidays, uh, an avid reader. But I think the thing, the two things that we as grandchildren, uh, including my three three cousins uh, from his um, other daughter, uh, Anne Desmond, uh, the thing that we really appreciated about him uh, was that he took us seriously when uh, many people didn't. And on one occasion in particular, I remember when I was about 10 years old and at Sunday school, um, I'd won a, a prize which meant you could pick up any book you wanted. So I picked a book on uh, Charles Wesley, one, one written for children. And I had I had read this and at the dinner table was the, the five Catherwoods and my grandparents. And they were talking about John Wesley and often being young, I didn't have anything to contribute to the conversation. And they were talking uh, about John Wesley and his influence, and I could see an opportunity that I could say something to the table. So I said, uh, in a somewhat pompous uh, way, being uh, 10 and trying to sound important, that I was, I'd always been a Charles Wesley man. And I thought this was very profound. Everybody at the table started laughing at this 10-year-old saying this, with the exception of my grandfather. And he gave a cold look to everybody around the table, and then he turned to me and he said, I've always liked Charles Wesley do too. Do tell me more about that. And I can't tell you how many times with my sister or my brother or my cousins uh, where he would uh, talk to us as if we were adults on the same plane as him and wanting to understand things. The thing that we appreciated is that we were deemed worthy of engaging with. And it's something that we uh, that we just loved about him, and that you could turn to him for, for anything. So sweet and gentle and uh, kind, uh, but most of all, interested, which is, as a young person, what you really want. By the time he retired from Westminster Chapel in August of 1968, Lloyd-Jones had become one of the most influential evangelicals of the century, both in the United Kingdom and here in the States. Hughes Oliphant Old, in his multi-volume work on the history of preaching, said the greatest impact of Lloyd-Jones on the English-speaking pulpit of today is the recovery of true expository preaching. And in a foreword to one of Lloyd-Jones's books, Eric Alexander said, There is little doubt 
that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the greatest preacher the English-speaking world has seen in the 20th century. And ever since his death in 1981, his influence has only expanded. Today, millions continue to listen to his sermons, and preachers everywhere look to him for guidance and inspiration. That was certainly the case for John MacArthur, who'd become a pastor just five months after Lloyd-Jones retired from Westminster. And even though Lloyd-Jones was alive for the first 12 years of John's ministry, the two men wouldn't become friends until after Lloyd-Jones went to heaven. I had not listened to Martin Lloyd-Jones preach that much when I came to Grace Church. He was never my model for preaching. Just a note, we're back on the 99 freeway driving to California's Central Valley. That's the noise you hear in the background. When I started out, I I didn't really uh, become interested in Lloyd-Jones until I got to the Book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount and got his, his book on the Sermon on the Mount. That's when I began to understand how he exposited scripture, how he handled scripture. I I think I may have preached through Romans the first time without even reading his material on Romans. So it was not that I that I tried to copy what he did. It is really that independent from each other, we we both determined based on our view of scripture, that the only thing to do was to explain the Bible. And while John is reading Lloyd-Jones on the Sermon on the Mount, a bond is forming. Well, what happened was, first I saw, not only in the Sermon on the Mount, his theological perspective, but I saw his pastoral heart. It came through there. And so naturally, I wanted to know more about this guy because I I had such an affinity for him. And, you know, you you can read people and say, well, you know, I I appreciate that. I like that. In my reading Lloyd-Jones, I felt like somebody was running around on my own head. I just felt like this guy sees things exactly the way I see things. And so I wanted to know all I could about him. And... um, then Murray came out with the uh, the first volume. Uh, I think it was in the early 80s, and uh, and I couldn't get to it fast enough. Uh, and then um, I think maybe 1990 was it something like that. He came out with volume two, which was double the thickness of volume one, and was really the the loaded volume. And I I ate up every word in that. And by the time it was done, I I found that I had, I had located sort of my model for theological exposition and application in pastoral ministry. So why did MacArthur find a kindred spirit in Lloyd-Jones? What specifically do the two men have in common? Well, there are several um, common denominators that distinguish both of them. 
And it really begins with a commitment to the Word of God. Steve Lawson has an extensive knowledge of both Lloyd-Jones and MacArthur. He wrote a book called The Passionate Preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he's been a friend and co-laborer of MacArthur's for decades. The Westminster Chapel was a pulpit-dominated church um, because he believed in the sufficiency of Scripture and the preaching of the Word of God as the primary means of grace. Uh, John MacArthur uh, embraced that as well and was a living example of that that at the center of Grace Community Church is a pulpit and a man standing behind that pulpit preaching sequentially verse by verse through the entire New Testament. It's extraordinary and has been in that pulpit for 53 years, which is extraordinary in and of itself. And John MacArthur doing what Lloyd-Jones did for all those years, just one man one message, one method, which is the straightforward preaching of the Word of God. And I think MacArthur really picked up the mantle of, of Lloyd-Jones unknowingly, in, in a way, but really has carried on that influence. In 2011, Lawson wrote an article for the Master's Seminary Journal called Striking Similarities Between Two Extraordinary Expositors. It was the first time anyone had documented how Lloyd-Jones and MacArthur's ministries reflected each other, even though they never met. MacArthur's uh, biblical scriptural emphasis upon the Lordship of Jesus Christ at the moment of conversion uh, has been a, a hallmark of his ministry, but it is also an echo of Lloyd-Jones's ministry. Um, both men preached sequentially through books in the Bible. Um, both men uh, have, have, have shown endurance and steadfastness and perseverance uh, through controversy, uh, through crisis, uh, through difficult times that they have been unwavering, uh, really without even blinking. Uh, both men's preaching have, have proved to be really the the cornerstone for very significant conferences that have drawn other pastors. Uh, Lloyd-Jones started the, the Puritan Conference, which had a far-reaching effect. Um, Lloyd-Jones's preaching really, I think, could be considered the, the cradle for the Banner of Truth publishing uh, trust. And the same with John MacArthur. Uh, strong men want to stand with a strong man, and the Shepherds Conference has, has proved to be that, is preachers, not just from around America, but from around the world, get on planes to fly to Los Angeles for the Shepherds Conference, much like they did with Lloyd-Jones for his Puritan Conference. We can't capture all the similarities. There are simply too many of them. But we can, at least, give you a few of the highlights starting with their conversions. Neither man can say exactly when the Lord saved them. I've never been able to do that. Uh, and, and it doesn't bother me. I, I think I'm one of those kids, I was one of those kids that never rebelled and always believed. And so when God did his saving work in my heart, it, it was not discernible to me. Martin Lloyd-Jones could give no date for his conversion. 
Please welcome our very own Jeremy Vuolo back to the podcast. On this episode, he gets to be Ian Murray's two-volume biography of Lloyd-Jones. So whenever you hear Jeremy's voice, you're hearing Murray's words. Unfortunately, Jeremy's accent is terrible. He's from someplace like Philadelphia. So you're going to have to work a bit harder, dear listeners, to imagine that this account of Lloyd-Jones' salvation is actually coming from a truly wise Scottish author. If chapel life does not explain Lloyd-Jones' spiritual change, far less does any influence which he encountered at Bart's. That he became a Christian while at hospital, and about the time that he was Hoarder's chief clinical assistant, was in spite of his location, not because of it. Parallel with Lloyd-Jones' observance of the world around him, but ultimately more decisive in his conversion, was the growing recognition which came to him of his own sinfulness. Salvation is not a mere decision. It's a mysterious act of God's sovereign grace when he regenerates a sinner. Both MacArthur and Lloyd-Jones understood and experienced the Spirit's work, and since salvation, sanctification, and all of the Christian life starts with the work of God, both men refused to make themselves the heroes of their own stories. Tonight we come to the third chapter of the book of Acts, and uh, I rarely make personal references when teaching the Bible because there's nothing in the Bible about me, so I, I can't justify talking about myself when I'm never the subject. It was customary among evangelical Christians at this date to encourage the practice of giving testimonies as a form of evangelistic witness and equally common for ministers to include personal references of various kinds in their sermons. Given Dr. Lloyd-Jones's unusual career and its interest for the general public, given also the spiritual experience which had so changed his life, it might well be supposed that reference to his own story would have appeared frequently in his preaching. The case was exactly the opposite. References to himself in his sermons were brief and rare. Anything in the way of a testimony to his conversion experience was almost wholly absent. The omission was not an oversight on his part, but the result of deep convictions. Clearly, both men don't want to talk about themselves. But what do they want to talk about, especially in the pulpit? Here's John during the same 2014 conference that Ian Murray was speaking at, talking about the similarities between his and Lloyd-Jones's preaching. He had the same view, essentially, of preaching that I've, that I've had, and I needed to find a hero that I could follow, and that was that exposition had to be relentlessly doctrinal. But I was convinced that the whole point of Bible exposition was so that the doctrine would emerge. And, and all preaching had to be doctrinal. And here's what Lloyd-Jones said about doctrinal preaching in his well-known book, Preaching and Preachers. What is preaching? It is theology on fire. And a theology which does not take fire, I maintain, is a defective theology. Or at least the man's understanding of it is defective. Preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. 
Here's another great example of the similarities between these two preachers. I get so wound up, I can't finish these messages. I'm in the process of teaching the preaching class, and I'm trying to teach them how to develop a good sermon, having a good beginning and a great conclusion and major points and moving through with power and impact, and I can't even finish my own sermon. So they all come out like a bunch of link sausage, just whacked off all over the place and hung together loosely. Uh, but I get so exercised in my spirit on these su subjects that I forget the structure and just wind up talking from my heart so much of the time. And like MacArthur, most of Lloyd-Jones's expository sermons carry over from week to week. During a panel discussion at that 2014 conference, Ian Murray explains why Lloyd-Jones did that. The point there is, it's leaving room for the Holy Spirit. If we, Absolutely. If we, yeah. You don't, you don't know. You may get so much more liberty and you've got two sermons instead of one. But beyond the personal and practical ways that they are similar, they have the same willingness to stand up for truth, no matter the consequences. And there were extraordinary consequences for Lloyd-Jones, especially on Tuesday, October 18th, 1966. That was the day Martin Lloyd-Jones had a very public, very famous disagreement with this British evangelical. In many parts of the world, the church is growing rapidly, as we know, though often in size rather than in depth. But it is growing. In other parts of the world, especially in the West now, if I may generalize, the church is not growing. It's... Development is stunted, its waters are stagnant, its breath is stale, and it's in a state of decay rather than a state of renewal. And we long to see it reformed, revived, renewed by the Spirit and the Word of God. That's John Stott well-known author, theologian, and one of the 20th century's most prominent evangelicals. Lloyd-Jones and Stott would publicly disagree during the 1966 National Assembly of Evangelicals, which brought together Protestant leaders from across Britain to talk about the movement's most pressing issues. The topic that day? Evangelical unity. It was a hot topic in light of recent events with Billy Graham and increasing ecumenical concerns. Lloyd-Jones had famously refused to cooperate with Graham unless he stopped partnering with liberal churches for his crusades. He said that history and scripture were against Lloyd-Jones. He called for evangelicals to stay in their denominations, to cooperate without compromise, as Stott said it. Lloyd-Jones and Stott's disagreement would create a visible rift within British evangelicalism, one that has lasted for more than 50 years. Bottom line, the end of Lloyd-Jones's career was marked by his opposition to the ecumenical efforts of Graham and Stott. We've tried to summarize that showdown. If you, dear listener, would like to read Lloyd-Jones's address for yourself, it's been reprinted by Banner of Truth under the title, Knowing the Times. Here's how MacArthur, understood the issue. Yeah, he immediately saw that the neo-evangelical dream was folly. He, uh, he, he, he couldn't give a place to a kind of evangelicalism 
that desired widespread acceptance and academic stature and then tried to be faithful to the Word of God. He knew that would never work. He wouldn't repudiate a kind of separatism, not, not, not a, an unbiblical separatism, not a kind of a mean-spirited fundamentalist separatism, but he knew that there was no possible way of having a, a ministry of spiritual virtue, high impact, if you were trying to gain the favor of the world. He correctly discerned that that was an illegitimate form of ecumenical patronage, and it would draw the evangelical movement away from its moorings, and that's exactly what it did. When I was in England a number of occasions, um, you know, in the last 20 years, the question of Lloyd-Jones would keep coming up even after he was gone, died in the early 80s. And the question was, did he he do the right thing in the Billy Graham thing? Did he do the right thing in separating from guys who wanted to stay in the Anglican church, for example? That was a big, huge issue. Uh, and, And still there's dangling elements of conversation about that history from you know, 50 years ago um, as to whether that was the right thing. But for Lloyd-Jones, it was never a personal assault. It was never a personal attack. In fact, Billy Graham asked Lloyd-Jones to participate in the London Crusade, and Lloyd-Jones gave him some criteria that if the Graham organization met those criteria, he would he would participate and of course they they refused to meet those so it it wasn't that he had animosity toward Billy Graham he wanted them to do it the right way in that last sentence John gives us a crucial part of this story Lloyd-Jones knew how to take courageous stands for the truth while still being gracious and kind with individuals The same leader who was willing to take such a convictional stand at that 1966 meeting of British evangelicals was also eager to maintain unity. Lloyd-Jones demonstrated that during a personal conversation with a Canadian Baptist pastor named T.T. Shields, who was known for his polemical, harsh, and ultra-critical emphasis in ministry. Ian Murray talks about their conversation in the biography. So here again is Jeremy Vuolo, pretending that he belongs among the Scottish Highlands. Lloyd-Jones thought the Baptist leader was sometimes too controversial, too denunciatory, and too censorious. Rather than helping young Christians by the strength of his polemics against liberal Protestants and Roman Catholics, Lloyd-Jones believed that Shields was losing the opportunity to influence those whose first need was to be given positive teaching. And when Shields defended his harsh, polemical style by comparing his work to a surgeon removing cancer, an analogy that would have resonated with the doctor, Lloyd-Jones said this, There is such a thing as surgical mentality, or of becoming what is described as knife-happy. I agree, there are some cases where you have got to operate, but the danger of the surgeon is to operate 
immediately. He thinks in terms of operating. And when shields pointed to Galatians 2, where the Apostle Paul withstood Peter to his face, Lloyd-Jones said this, The effect of what Paul did was to win Peter round to his position and make him call him our beloved brother Paul. Can you say the same thing about the people whom you attack? Lloyd-Jones entreated his friend to dial back the ungracious and overly critical aspects of his ministry. He appealed to him to reconsider the attitude, stance, and posture he was taking. This is the same concept we find in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. It says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, skillful in teaching, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Like Lloyd-Jones, MacArthur is not afraid of controversy and is a man of strong conviction. We learned that in Season 1, Episode 6, The Sheepdog, when John publicly criticized Mark Driscoll and held a conference critiquing the charismatic movement. Before he ever wrote against Driscoll, he appealed to him privately in several gracious letters to no avail. The people who truly know John MacArthur say he's one of the most gracious men they've ever met, and he has relationships with people he doesn't agree with. Over the years, he would occasionally have breakfast or lunch with the Pentecostal preacher Jack Hayford, who led a charismatic church in the same neighborhood as Grace. He knows how to preach the truth and love people. That's a crucial quality for all effective spiritual leaders, and it's a quality that defines both Lloyd-Jones and MacArthur. A few years ago, John wrote a chapter for a Banner of Truth book about his love for Lloyd-Jones. In that chapter, he included many of the notes he'd written in the margins while reading Ian Murray's two-volume biography. Recently, I asked him to read a few of those reflections for me and comment on what he was reading. Here are things that will sound very familiar to those who know me. Lloyd-Jones couldn't give a date for his conversion. That struck me at first because I couldn't either. Uh, He rejected emotionalism and sentimentality in preaching in favor of carefully reasoned biblical arguments. And, you know, Austin, you've heard me say many times, every sermon is an argument. Every sermon is a case made that is so airtight and so compelling that you can't escape the reasonableness of it. Um... His keen, logical, observant mind was his greatest asset. He had powers of observation and deduction that made him a disciplined and perceptive exegete. Um, he, he was, a, as a medical doctor, he was a diagnostician, and they used to say about him that he was the best at diagnosis. And I've always felt that that's the greatest gift that an expositor can have is to diagnose the passage and get down to the bottom of the realities that are there. Um, Nevertheless, he understood that holiness, not skill, was what made a pastor worthy of respect. He always was searching for, and you'll understand this, he always was searching for clarity and seeking to cut through muddled thinking. Um, Personal references in his preaching, almost non-existent. And uh, 
That's true in my case. I, I rarely ever make personal references in my preaching. It's never about me. Um, I think one of the interesting things that he said was he was lonely. In fact, he made the comment that I am the loneliest man in the world. And while I may not understand his loneliness, I understand what it is to need to be isolated, to be productive in, um, in Bible teaching and preaching and preparation. There is a certain loneliness in the sense that you're not socializing with anybody. It's not loneliness in the sense that you're, you're not communing with God, which is the best form of communication you could ever have. But he also was always winning friends and making enemies. Um, You couldn't be neutral about Lloyd-Jones. You either loved him or you resented him. And he he lived in that familiar middle, I think, where all strong preachers with firm convictions belong, right in in the firm middle where you gain and lose influence at the same time. Um, when your strength strength is in your convictions and the clarity of your convictions and the unmistakable articulation of your convictions, you you win the people who are drawn to the truth and you alienate the people who are not. So it was never a popularity contest with him. It was always about the truth, the truth, and nothing but the truth. Um, He said, we do not discover truth through philosophy or human reason. It is revealed. All truth is rational but it is revealed from God. We have absolute dependence on the authority of Scripture. He said the strongest and most persuasive kind of preaching was that which enunciated biblical authority. Um, And and then so many things. Uh, He said the central doctrine and theological high point of all preaching is the sovereignty and glory of God. And he also said that errors and misrepresentations of the gospel, no matter how small they might appear, have to be confronted and answered with the truth, and it's not optional. And then I love this one, and you would know why after I I tell you what he said. Submission to the Lordship of Christ is the essential evidence that a person's faith is genuine. Last year, when I was interviewing Ian Murray for the eighth episode of season one, I asked him to briefly compare Lloyd-Jones and MacArthur. Here's what he said. The first in in that list would definitely be humility. They said of Whitfield that he was a lion in the pulpit and a lamb out of it. That was true of Lloyd-Jones. He he was quite awe-inspiring in the pulpit. But it was the word that made him such. And when people met him, they were often surprised at how approachable he was, how readily he was ready to hear them and listen to what they had to say. In that respect, those two men are very similar. They're both similar in the importance they place upon books and literature. Lloyd-Jones' work, a very important part of that work was to inspire younger men to read the right books And in his sermons, he would make allusions to books. And because people respected him, they would follow up what he recommended. Uh, Pastor John had that same influence. uh, It's a great thing. And given the priority given to preaching and the priority to his own congregation, you know, he's not going to sacrifice what ought to be given to the local church 
in order to give a month of lectures at some seminary somewhere. He's not going to do that. Lloyd-Jones wouldn't do that. What made Lloyd-Jones so strong was that when he had a conviction, he lived by it. And it didn't change because uh, he had sentimental uh, appeals coming to him from friends or family. He was a man of absolute conviction. There was a graciousness about him, unquestionably a graciousness about him. But convictions were convictions, and biblical truth was biblical truth, and he didn't compromise that. During one of my conversations with John, I asked him why it's appropriate to honor and learn from men like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Here is our exchange. You talk about the doctor's immense abiding influence, and that's why we're doing this podcast, is because it's biblical to remember your leaders, specifically those who spoke the word of God to you. Uh, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So I love to, to have people listen to you do that, about the doctor, and I think that if if people are being uh, charitable, they understand that what we're trying to do here is not, you know, some kind of, you know, put you on a pedestal or, or, you know, hero worship thing, but we really are trying to show these enduring influences and legacies, and that's what what I think is so, so to be appreciated about your love for the doctor. Well, his preaching was accurate and clear and timeless. And that last word is really important. Um, you, you better be able to get your sermon out of your zip code and out of the year that you preached it if, uh, if you want to have a lasting ministry. And you can read Lloyd-Jones or you can, you can listen to Lloyd-Jones. His sermons are available today. And they are as powerful and true and compelling now as they were then. And in the world in which we live these days, where these sermons have been recorded, um, we have the opportunity to be profoundly enriched by things that were preached decades and decades ago. Uh, we were talking the other day about the fact that during the life of Spurgeon, there was equipment that could have recorded his voice, and they never did it. And there are people who you know, could strangle whoever the people were who knew the, the equipment and never used it because... They would so long to hear Spurgeon's voice, but even without his voice, how many preachers read Spurgeon and how does he show up and how often does he show up in their, in their preaching and teaching? Because his interpretation of scripture and its relevance is utterly timeless. It, 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 it can move through generations and it can move through cultures and it can move through periods of time. And that's, that's the kind of preaching that lasts. It's, um, it's intensely biblical, theological, and thus it's, in a sense, it's timeless. You really believe that he died upon that cross because you were so vile and so damned and so hopeless that nothing but that could save you? You believe and say with the Apostle Paul, it is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. That's what it means to receive him. In God's providence, 
the relationship between MacArthur and Lloyd-Jones has a poignant and fitting final chapter. On February 10th, 2019, Grace Community Church celebrated 50 years with its pastor. For the occasion, a most appropriate gift was given to Pastor John, and our friend, Jonathan Catherwood, was there to present it to him. Pastor John has been a wonderful and kind supporter of all things Lloyd-Jones, and we are so grateful to him for keeping my grandfather's ministry alive, not just by letting today's followers of Christ know about the Lloyd-Jones sermons, but by continuing my grandfather's total commitment to biblical authority and expositional preaching. In fact, as you just heard, Pastor John began his ministry here at Grace Community Church in 69, just one year after my grandfather stepped down from the pulpit of Westminster Chapel in London. To honor the legacy of Pastor John and to show our family's gratitude to him, I'm here today to present him a prayer desk that belonged to my grandfather and was left to me and which was used by my grandfather on a daily basis in his study as he prepared his sermons. This desk is used to great men of God being used by the Holy Spirit to prepare sermons for their flock. And I can think of no better home for it than with God's servant, Pastor John MacArthur. May the Lord continue to bless you, Pastor John, as you continue to expand the scriptures that have guided you and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in your ministries in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. This prayer desk serves as a physical symbol of the necessary dependence that every preacher must have on the Holy Spirit. Preaching and prayer, another common bond between these two servants of God. Today, this antique piece of furniture is in MacArthur's office, a present reminder to him and to all of us that sometimes God gives friendships that transcend time. We all need a Lloyd-Jones in our lives. A man who, though dead, yet still speaks. Someone with whom we share the same convictions, loves, and priorities. All of us are entrusted with the gospel by the previous generation. And if we don't see our ministry in the lives of those who've gone before us, we are missing so much encouragement, help, and discipleship. Of course, your dead friend doesn't have to be Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It can be Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, J.C. Ryle, the Puritans, Calvin, Luther. It can be all of them. But you need someone. As Piper said, biographies have served as much as any other human force in my life to resist the inertia of mediocrity. You are next in line in a 2,000-year relay of church history. So take advantage of those who have run the race before you. Let these men entrust the gospel to you so that you will be faithful to pass it on to those who will come behind you. Thanks for listening to Season 2 of the MacArthur Center Podcast. In our third episode, we're going to talk about Russia. From behind the Iron Curtain through today's war in Ukraine, John MacArthur's preaching has spread throughout the Slavic-speaking world. Find out why and how next on The Entrusted, The Convictions and Legacy of John MacArthur. 
The Entrusted is produced by Austin T. Duncan, Corey Williams, and Jeremy Vuolo. Our editors are Habib Tanus and Cody Signore, who always adds the best beats. We're grateful for Jonathan Catherwood, who honored his grandfather so well in our conversation. Also, my friend Steve Lawson and Ian Murray, who wrote the biography that knitted John and Lloyd-Jones together. For more information about the MacArthur Center, go to macarthurcenter.org. And to learn more about the Master's Seminary, please visit tms.edu. ATD. 